The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, I'm glad all of you are here. This is a, a class on sanctification. We're going to be looking at, um, you know, more, more the negative aspect of sanctification, what's generally known as mortification of sin. But we're, you know, I'm going to put it this morning in a larger context of the uh, progressive work of salvation that we're doing, and so that you men will will understand that. Um, it's a, it's a joy to be with you. I'm looking forward to it. Let's open in prayer, and we'll get started. We have a lot to lot to cover. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Christ. Thank you for loving us so richly and fully. I'm so excited to be able to teach this morning on sanctification and then in the worship service to be able to preach uh, first of a good number of sermons on, on heaven from Revelation 21 and 22. And um, it's just such a joyful uh, topic. And uh, we just are so thankful that you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness. You've rescued us from the hell that we deserve. And you, you're bringing us now into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. And I pray that this morning would be a time of building of, up of our faith. I pray for these men that are in this room, specifically this BFL class, that you give us a determination to fight sin. Uh, Lord, it's, it's essential that we, that we put sin to death by the power of the Spirit. And I ask that you would strengthen us to do that. Help me to be clear this morning. Help me to try to make uh, this energetic, passionate effort at killing sin uh, very clear that we would not uh, misunderstand salvation just because we have to mortify sin, that we, will not mi- that we will not misunderstand justification and what Christ has done for us. So help us as we study, and I pray that you would make my words clear in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, I really love in BFL classes for there to be give and take. Uh, so I had to write this while I, this uh, outline while I was at my trustee meeting this week. So the outline's not the final word. Um, what's missing are good, thoughtful uh, discussion questions. And those aren't always easy to come up with. I've been asking questions in settings like this for years, and I know some questions that are really bad, like the closed end of the yes-no questions. Like, you know, if there's yes-no, somebody says yes, and then that's that. So um, I'm looking for a good discussion. Uh, help me out, um, but I, I really desire not for, the, for this not just to be a lecture. Um, but I didn't have the time uh, this week to, uh, to work through good discussion questions. I'll be doing that on the fly. Uh, I want to begin by just talking about, first of all, the name of the class is Slaying Temptation, Starving Sin. Um, and we're going to uh, kind of root that even this morning in a text of Scripture, Romans 6.6. 6. And the basic idea there is that we have the power in Christ if we're Christians. If we're not Christians, we can't do anything either with temptation or with sin. Um, but if we are Christians, we're alive uh, in Christ, and we are raised up to be warriors. Uh, there's so many verses that teach this, but we're raised up to put on spiritual armor and fight, uh, fight Satan and to fight sin. And we need to understand that fight properly. It'd be very easy for us to go into a works righteousness or a justification by works mentality and, and for us to, uh, to misunderstand salvation. So I'm going to be working big picture this morning and trying to uh, teach how salvation comes to us in stages and, and how uh, we should understand that. But uh, I want you to know that uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to kill every single temptation that ever comes to us, all of them. 
Uh, not a single temptation ever comes to us with compulsive force so that we have to, we can say, after it's over, there was nothing I could have done. I had to sin in that situation. That's just not true. That's a lie from the devil. However, I never teach perfectionism. I don't believe we will be perfect in this world. Um, I believe that we're going to keep sinning um, until we die. But I'm just saying we don't need to. That's what I'm saying. And it's hard to kind of sort that out. So I believe individual moments of temptation can be killed, should be killed, but that sin itself cannot be killed while we live in this world. However, it can be weakened. We can starve sin patterns so much that they do not trouble us very much day to day. And that's a worthy goal, don't you think? Uh, if you have certain sin patterns, you're struggling with certain things, uh, and there are varieties of sins that people struggle with them, uh, day by day. Uh, wouldn't it be beautiful if five years from now, if you're still alive and the Lord hasn't returned, those sin patterns have so greatly receded in your life that they really are not a daily part of your life, they're not a daily concern. You're still vigilant in those areas. You know that the, those could spring back to life with some foolish actions, but they don't need to. And I think that's a worthwhile goal, don't you think? So that's what we're heading for. We want to have a lot of weeks, uh, I think like six weeks for this class, so we have to get started. I want to begin by just giving you a picture of how salvation comes in stages, and I want to do that uh, through the entryway of Jesus' miracles, uh, Jesus' miracles. Uh, Jesus' miracles reveal God's glory. They reveal Jesus' glory. I just want to say in evangelism, I think it would be really good for you to memorize word for word a miracle story. Um, I think that would be really powerful, like the stilling of the storm. Just memorize the whole account in one of the Gospels. Or my favorite is memorize the story of the, of the friends that brought the paralyzed man and lowered him down, having dug through the roof. I love that because Jesus links his, his, um, uh, his miracle, the power that he had to, uh, to raise this man from the dead, he links it to the, the authority he has to forgive sins. And that'll, that'll lead you right into a Gospel presentation at that point. But Jesus' miracles are displays of his glory. Uh, could someone read Mark 1, 40 through 42? I hope you all got a handout. If not, they're on that stand in the back. So do you see that? Verse 41, filled with compassion. Jesus' miracles were a display of his compassion. He was moved with compassion. And all of them were. Um, so they put Jesus' attributes on display. They also demonstrate his power. Someone read this one, Matthew 8. So I think that's a, I love that, that miracle story. It's incredible. Um, but to see the question, what was the question that popped up in their minds after the storm was stilled? What kind of, who is this person? And uh, it's pretty clear that the miracle gives a ready answer to that. This person is God. I mean, God's the only one that has power over weather patterns. And Jesus has that kind of, so it's a demonstration of Jesus' compassion with the leper and his power with the stilling of the storm. And this is the one that I mentioned, a uh, demonstration of Jesus' authority. Matthew 9, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. That's such a powerful moment. One of the things I like to note in that miracle is that uh, this man has two problems. He has a sin problem and he has a physical problem. He's paralyzed. Which of the two does Jesus heal first or deal with first? The sin problem. And we understand, though it would be hard for us to get our, wrap our minds around it, but if that's all that Jesus did as the judge of all the earth, we talked about that last Sunday in, in uh, Revelation 20, the, the great white throne judgment. Jesus will sit on the great white throne and he will judge every human being that's ever lived. What is the value of Jesus saying to you, your sins are forgiven? How, how valuable would that be to you? 
that would be really eternally all you need. If that's all that Jesus did for that man, that would be infinitely enough. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now go home and be paralyzed the rest of your life. Honestly, that's what he does for most paralyzed Christians, like Joni Erickson. He didn't free her from paralysis, but he forgave her sins. And for her, that's enough, isn't it? That's enough. She's said it more times than you can count. That's enough. She's looking forward to the resurrection body when she won't be paralyzed, but in the meantime, her hope is so radiant and powerful. And that's the lampstand uh, God decided to put her on, and she's used it well. Uh, but in this case, uh, Jesus uh, was willing to do more than that. Uh, at any rate, we get into the theology, though, of justification, the theology of Jesus' right to forgive sins. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. I mean, and it, it really, if he's not God, it really would be blasphemy because this paralyzed man hadn't sinned against Jesus at all. We have the power, the right to forgive people who have sinned horizontally against us. We actually have the responsibility to do that as Christians. We should forgive others as the Lord has forgiven us. But you can't go to some total stranger who's having some problem in his life, like with his wife or something, say, I want you to know, saying to the wife, I forgive him. Be like, who are you? <laughs> How are you involved? But this man, this, Jesus forgave this man's sins universally, completely, all of his sins. And so it actually is reasonable. Again, the same question as in the stilling the storm. Who is this man? He's blaspheming. He has no right to forgive sins. I love this, verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them. Isn't that powerful? I know what you're thinking. And then he asked this question, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? And uh, if you just pause and think about it for a moment, you realize in both cases, it's easy to say. Uh, it's uh, impossible for us to do. All right. We have as much ability to forgive sins like Jesus did that day as we do to say to a paralyzed man, rise and walk. We have the same power. Jesus also has the same power. He can do what we can't. Which is easier to say it? It's no problem to say, your sins are forgiven. And it's no problem to say to a paralyzed man, rise and walk, but you would just be torturing them. If you went into hospitals where people were working uh, with paralyzed people and just said, rise and walk to them, but you had no power, you would be thrown out of the place, and you should be, because you're just tormenting these paralyzed people. But Jesus has the ability not just to say it, but to do it so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralyzed man, rise and walk. And look at the reaction. You know, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given that particular authority, not just to men, but to a man, to Jesus. So that's just a picture of Jesus' power. He revealed his glory. It says in John 1:14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the radiant display of the attributes of God. It's, it's putting the attributes on display. If you look at the handout that have been given so far, we've seen compassion, we've seen power, uh, authority, different things. The attributes of Christ are radiantly put on display by these miracles. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten or the one and only full of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 2.11, uh, you know, with the uh, first miracle, the changing of the water to wine, says in John 2.11, the first, this the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. Look at this. And his disciples put their faith in him. So John's gospel especially is clear 
that the miracles are a solid basis for faith in Jesus. Because of the miracles, we can and should believe that he's the Son of God. John makes this actually very clear. John 14, 11, Jesus said these words, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least, believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Jesus himself said, that's a solid basis for faith in me. Look at the miracles and come to the conclusion that I am God in the flesh. That's what he's saying. And then at the end of John's gospel, John openly ties the two together. Someone read this for us, John 20, 30, and 31. Uh, the Gospel of John is organized around seven miraculous signs, extended stories, like a whole chapter devoted to a man born blind. Beautiful chapter, John 9. The whole thing is just, he zeroes in on one miracle. But Jesus did literally tens of thousands of miracles. Whole populations, Jerusalem and the Decapolis, these whole regions would go out and heal them all. All of them. So just so many stories could be told. And John says in John 21, look, if I wrote down everything and gave it the proper treatment, the world couldn't hold all the books that would be written. But these miracles are written that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So even 20 centuries later, we are able to read these accounts and come to faith in Christ. That's why the Gospel of John is written. That's why the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke, the Gospels are written. So that as we read them, we come to faith. We believe the miracle stories. So, so much for the miracles. But I would say this, miracles are also somewhat living parables for a larger work of salvation he came to do. The overwhelming majority of Jesus' miracles were of what type? I mean, 95% of his miracles, if not more, were of what type? Healings. I mean, that's, that's overwhelming. He stilled the storm, it's true. He fed the 5,000, uh, walked on water. He did other things, uh, changed the water to wine. But that's not what he mostly did. Like I said, huge populations were going out to him and he's healing them all. So 95%, if not more, of his miracles were healings. Now, here's the thing. Without Adam's sin, without death coming into the world, there's no need for the healings. And so there really is a strong link between sin and death. And before that, then we would say between sin and sickness. So God didn't make the human eye to be blind. Why would he put all of that complexity into the eyeball and then have a man born blind? It, it, he didn't, that's not what he made the human eye for. He didn't make the complexity of your, of your legs and the spinal cord and all of that so, so that you could be paralyzed and not be able to walk. It doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus' miracles are rectifying things into what they should have been. That's what the healings are all about. And I would say in general, I want you to think of it just in the weeks we have together. I, it's so powerful and I think it's, it's, it's right for you to take a therapeutic view of salvation. That salvation from sin is a therapy. It's a healing process. You're messed up. And he's healing you until you're at last what you should have been. That's, he's going to make you a perfected soul in a perfected body in a perfected world and everything will be as it should have been. Right now it's not, it's messed up. And so the healing aspect, I think heals so much, it, it actually helps explain so many of the things in terms of like Calvinism, Arminianism, free will and all that. I think those problems have mostly gone away from me when I realize that when he heals the human heart and he heals the human perception and he heals the human will, we're going to choose Jesus 100% of the time. It's messed up not to. He is so radiant and beautiful and wonderful. Healed people will love him. It's sick and twisted not to love Jesus and not to follow him. Do you see what I'm saying? But he doesn't have to heal everybody. He doesn't heal everybody. 
And so you can wrangle with that all you want. You'll have the same problem of Calvinism, Arminianism before you came in the room this morning. I'm just saying the therapeutic view will help you as you wrangle. When he heals you, you'll do the right thing. And that's the powerful. There's a, there's a, uh, and, and these miracles are a display of that. It's a display of soteriology, of salvation. These miracles picture salvation for us. You remember when John the Baptist was questioning about Jesus and Jesus says uh, to the messengers, John's in prison, and it's like, uh, it's such a, a weak moment for John. John was a great man and saw before anyone that Jesus, he saw and testified that Jesus was the Son of God. Son of God, before Jesus even did a single miracle. John the Baptist saw that because the Father told him, right? By the, by the Spirit coming, descending as a dove. It's in John chapter 1. But later, John the Baptist in weakness asked, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? I mean, how could anyone expect someone else other than the Son of God? So he's weak, he's in prison. And so what does he do? The messengers are standing. He does a bunch of miracles in front of the messengers. And then he says, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So it's a little bit of a warning there. Don't fall away. Keep believing. But it's the miracles that did it. It's a picture. So human inability, Jesus touches, now you have ability. That's what you get again. The eye can't see, Jesus touched, now you can see. The legs can't walk, he touches, now you can walk. All the way to resurrection, Lazarus, right? Can't live or do anything. He touches you and then you can be alive. So it's physical. I believe in the physical miracles. Uh, no, I just believe it's the historical accounts. These things actually occurred. But they're also, it's a spiritual metaphor too. He's living out metaphor. And I think we have the right to do that because we see in John chapter 9, remember the man born blind? At the end, Jesus spiritualizes the miracle. And the malady, too. Someone read for us John 9, 39 through 41. By the way, before you read it, I'll just tell you the context. They basically arrested the healed man. Remember that? They, they, they basically arrested the guy for being healed. <laughs> and they hauled him in front of the spiritual authorities, and they're grilling him about Jesus. And he's like, look, I'm just tell, let me just tell you my day, okay? I just had a day like any other day, and then suddenly this guy comes along and... You know, I've talked about this before. There's like three steps to the guy's testimony. Mud, wash, see. Those are the three steps. There was some mud, wash it off, now I can see. Now, you want me to theologize about that? I'll do the best I can. But I'm just telling you what happened to me. <laughs> and the guy's as subtle as a brick, and I love him, you know? But they end up throwing him out because he basically says, isn't it obvious who Jesus is? Obvious to me. And the real wonder here is that you don't see it. That's the context. Now, someone read for us John 9, 39 through 41. All right, so Jesus is actually taking on the men who had made this man's life miserable. And he's challenging them. And effectively, what is he saying to them about their condition? They're, they're blind. Now, they're not physically blind. Jesus, in some way, says if they were physically blind, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. Um, it's, it's not an easy statement to unravel, and I don't need to do that. But what I am saying is there's a link. Jesus makes, he spiritualizes the physical healing here. And he talks about effectively spiritual blindness. I think because he does this, we have the right to do that with all of the maladies that he healed. They're all pictures of spiritual issues. Even while they're physical, they're still pictures of spiritual issues. So that brings us now to this issue of salvation coming to us in stages. 
What did Jesus come to save us from? Matthew 1.21, this is when uh, Joseph was wrangling with whether he wanted to divorce his wife or not, Mary, uh, before they came together. Uh, the angel said, you will, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus came to save us from sin. And what I want, want you to understand is he came to save you from sin in all of its manifestations and all of its effects on you and on the universe. Everything that sin has done to you and everything that sin has done to your redeemed brothers and sisters in Christ and everything that sin has done uh, in the universe, Jesus came to save us from all of it. What a mighty work that is from sin. All right, now we don't get our salvation from sin all at once. That's what we need to come to understand. Salvation comes to us in stages. And if you don't understand that, you're going to struggle with certain passages of Scripture and you're going to struggle with your daily life in ways you shouldn't. Uh, you're going to struggle with hope in ways you shouldn't. So I think it's just important for you to understand that you're getting your salvation in stages. Uh, we are saved from sin in the past. If you, I'm speaking now to you who are Christians. If you are born again, I'm speaking to you. If you're not, then I'm not. But uh, if you are a Christian right now as you listen to me, the Bible would say you have been saved already. Someone read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. As we're going to unfold the stages of salvation even this morning, I think we would understand that Ephesians 2 is talking about what? Have been saved. If you're a Christian now, you have been saved. What's it talking about there? Justification. That's the beginning of the Christian life. That's forgiveness of sins. And that comes to us, Ephesians 2, by grace through faith, not by works. All right? That's very important. Past salvation. However, there's also a present salvation that's going on. There are many verses that teach this. Um, someone read uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18. I think the NIV alone really expands out and makes this a present progressive type thing. Most just say, for us who are saved, etc. But it's just a simple present tense in the Greek. And later in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel that you heard, which you received. And by this gospel, you're saved if you continue to believe in it. That's what he says. So the gospel, the simple milk of the gospel, the message of the cross, is an ongoing message for us. We have to continue believing in the power of the cross. We have to continue drinking the milk of the gospel the rest of our lives. So we are in the process of being saved. Uh, and then future, uh, Romans 5, 9. Someone read that for us as well. That's definitely future. It's in the Greek. It's a future tense. What it means is there's a salvation that will come to you that you don't have yet. And it's specifically saved from God's wrath. And I think it's best for us to even go beyond all of the seven you know, seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. Go right to what I preached on last Sunday, the great white throne and the lake of fire. You will be saved on judgment day from hell. I think that's the future salvation, saved from God's eternal wrath. But you haven't received that salvation yet because the day hasn't come yet. The day of the Lord has not yet come. And you're going to need that salvation on that day. It's going to mean everything to you on that day. But what Paul's saying in Romans 5 is you definitely will be saved on that day. But it just hasn't happened yet. So you see the time orientation of our salvation. Past tense, present tense, future tense. That teaches pretty plainly that there's a progressive work of salvation going on. We have been saved. We are being saved. We have yet to be saved, but we will be. All right, so let's talk now about these main stages of salvation. We already mentioned the first one. There's more details I could give here, but I just want to zero in on three. Justification, sanctification, glorification. 
I feel just sad in my heart that, that in so many Baptist churches, they, they just don't teach this very clearly. I don't understand it. I mean, if there's just such an emphasis on the initial moment of justification, of regeneration, of being born again, and then a trusting in a kind of a vague, not articulated, well, uh, theology of once saved, always saved. And that's the best that they have to offer. And I just think that that's just not good workmanship. It's shoddy workmanship. I think we need to do better than that. We need to be clear. So let's be clear. Let's keep it simple to these three stages. There's justification, which inevitably leads into sanctification, which inevitably leads into glorification. Everyone that's justified will be sanctified, and everyone that's sanctified will be glorified. It's inevitable. There's not some get some, etc. That's That's the process. And it's so clear, it's so strong that we can jump into sanctification, the work of holiness, of growing in Christlikeness, and say if that's not going on, then justification is in doubt. I'm just saying as an observer from the outside, or you yourself looking at your own life, you can look at your own holiness, you can look at your own battle with sin. And if that is going very, very badly, I think it's reasonable to question whether you were justified. I think it's actually a healthy thing to do. Some people would say if you wrote the date in your Bible that you walked forward at that revival service, you should never question that, no matter how you're living. Again, that's shoddy workmanship. You need to look at holiness. You need to look at the works of your life. You need to look at the fruit of your life. And if the fruit isn't there, then there's good reason to question whether the justification is there as well. So everyone who is justified is sanctified. Everyone who is sanctified is glorified. Yeah, that's the, those are the stages. Let's talk about each of those stages. First, justification. Justification is a judicial declaration, a declaration by God the judge, that a sinner is righteous in his sight. Or a simpler way would be uh, on the issue of the crimes that you committed against his law and against his person and against his glory. On those crimes, you are held officially not guilty. That's incredible when you think about it. You're forgiven. There's lots of elements of justification. We could talk about the relational aspect. We use the word reconciliation. There are a lot of different images, but I want to zero in on on this one, the the court sense, that God judicially declares you to be righteous in his sight or not guilty of all the sins. All right, someone read Romans 3, 9 through 12. Okay, that's the clearest passage in the Bible on the universality of sin. Every single human being needs to be justified. Okay, everyone uh, needs to be made righteous. Uh, that we understand the law and we violate it. Then Romans 3 describes what, what that actually is. This is the key text on justification. Romans 3, 20 through 28. No one will be justified or declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Let me just pause and say that just very plainly. That's what we call justification by works or the idea that present or future obedience to the law of God will pay for past disobedience to the law of God. Okay? In other words, yesterday, a year ago, 10 years ago, you broke God's law. Your strategy for dealing with that is to keep God's law today. (laughs) Or next week I'm planning on keeping God's law. Or I'll never do that again. You see how foolish that is, the idea of trying to pay for sins by good deeds. It's like, well, the good deeds were, there's no extra credit on this test, friends. All right, you either love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself or you don't. It's not like there's like 105% possible on this test. So you can never on any given day do better than 100% of God's law. 
So that's just impossible. No one will be justified by works of the law. Cannot happen. Once you have sinned, you need a savior or you're going to be damned. That's what it's saying. No one will be justified in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin, become aware of the sin problem. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. It's not violently against the law. The law and the prophets point toward it. That's what he's saying. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's justification by faith. You have faith in Christ. You get a righteousness from God as a free gift. Everyone who believes gets that free gift. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So we're given a free gift of justification of righteousness as a gift by the redemption, that's the buying back with the price that came through Jesus Christ. Verse 25, God presented him as a propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement uh, through faith in his blood. He did it to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Where then is boasting? It is excluded on what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Well, we could obviously unfold that for hours. It's very thick, um, but that's the central teaching on justification. We are declared righteous in the sight of God by faith in Jesus Christ on the basis of his blood atonement on the cross. And if you trust in Jesus' blood atonement on the, on the cross, God will see you as righteous and you'll be declared not guilty of, of all your sins. Romans 4 unfolds this as well. What shall we say? What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So that's, those are examples. Abraham and David are cited as examples uh, of Old Testament saints that were justified by faith. David writes in Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That word covered is so powerful. God just covers our sins. Doesn't make them go away. He can't make them go away. But what he does is he, uh, he covers, covers our sins with the atoning work of Jesus. The Yom Kippur is a day of covering. Even the language as far as the east is from the west, they're still in the east if you're in the west. It's just that relationally you're not at any disadvantage. God has forgiven you. I mean, he always remembers what you did or else he wouldn't be omniscient, but he covers it. That's the word. He covers it with the blood of Christ. And how beautiful is that? And how marvelous. And it's done by faith, not by works. That's justification. The result of justification then is full forgiveness of sins and total reconciliation with God. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. God richly forgives us. I mean, look at the father of the prodigal son. That's what it looks like. That's what forgiveness by the father looks like. He is really good at forgiving. He's not like us. You know, well, I forgive you, but, you know, <laughs> that's, that's not forgiveness, just so you know. I forgive you, but, you know, you're going to have to pay. 
Um, <clears throat> that's, that's not forgiveness. And then Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, how, how can we even put a value on that? God is at peace with us. And we are at peace with God. We're in a peaceful relationship with God. How marvelous is that? A status of peace. And then Romans 5.11, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Reconciliation is that, is that warm-hearted uh, renewing of a relationship. It's as, as though the sin never happened. And how beautiful is that? It's a marvelous thing. We get all that through justification. God also sees us as positionally righteous in His sight. Now, this is probably one of the most staggering things. People just don't meditate on it enough. Basically, God sees you in Christ as law-abiding. He sees you as having kept the law. It's incredible. He actually sees you as righteous as Jesus in that regard which is amazing. Jesus spoke of his perfect obedience to the Father in John 8, 29. The one who sent me, God the Father, is with me. <clears throat> he has not left me alone. Why? For I always do what pleases him. Is there anyone that would like to say that about themselves? Would you like to raise your hand and give us a testimony about how you always do what pleases the Father? We know that we don't. We would love to say that at the end of a single day. Today, I honestly can say, I did not violate my conscience once. As far as I can tell, I always did what God wanted me to do today. I think that's possible. I think that I wouldn't, still wouldn't want to say it. <laughs> I'd still think there might have been something, some way that I could have loved better, some way that I could have served better. Just saying that would be fine. Yeah, there you go. So don't say it. <laughs> Let another mouth praise you, not your own. But in Jesus' case, it was absolutely true, and he had to say it so that we knew that he was perfectly righteous. What's staggering is based on justification, we're seen that way, positionally. Incredible. We are seen to be positionally righteous. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, It is because of Him, God the Father, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus is our righteousness, not our track record. That's not our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's that great exchange that happens there. Our sin gets put on Jesus and he dies. His righteousness gets put on us and we live. And that's that exchange. That's the basic mechanism, what we would call double imputation. In the mind of God, it's all in the mind of God, God credits our sin to him, though he didn't sin at all. And he died a, a righteous death. It was not unjust for God to punish him once the transfer of guilt had been made. It was not an unjust action on God's part. But first, the transfer. There's guilt transferred to Jesus, our substitute. And he died. And not just on the cross. I would have to say all of his harsh treatment, the floggings, the, the societal rejection, the fact that he's outside the camp, all of those things are part of the, the punishment of sin. And so all of his harsh treatment, that's what we deserved. To be spat upon, to be rejected by the populace, to be decreed guilty by the judicial system twice, actually a religious trial and a political trial or a governmental trial, just completely guilty. I mean, that's us. And Jesus stood in for us as our substitute. And none of that was unjust on God's part because first the transfer of guilt had to be made. You see, so he, he treated him as though he was guilty. 
though he had committed no sin. And then he imputes Christ's righteousness to us, though we were not righteous. That is the basic mechanism of the gospel. If you don't understand it, you don't understand Christianity. You don't understand the gospel. That miraculous exchange, our sin on Jesus and he dies, his righteousness on us and we live, that's Christianity. That's what we're trying to explain to people in the gospel. All right, so there's a lot of words here that came from my book, Infinite Journey. You can skip them and read them later. I just want you to understand um, justification because this class is about sanctification. But if you don't understand justification, you're not going to do sanctification the right way. You're going to be constantly relapsing into works righteousness. You're going to keep trying to pay for yesterday's sins by being a really good person today. It's just what you're going to do. So let me just uh, stop and ask you you folks, some of you, to, to articulate. Why would you say a solid foundation of justification by faith alone, apart from works of law, is essential for us in sanctification? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I just have to confess to you that every day of my sinful life as a Christian, I've struggled with works righteousness. Every single time I felt guilty for sin, there is works righteousness standing in front of me saying, he'd try this. And the alternative is the cross and faith. It's like, no, I'm going back to the cross. I'm going to go back and trust that Jesus' death is sufficient. I'm going to ask forgiveness. And based on an, an imputation that's already happened, that's what I'm going to trust in. Anyone else on justification? Absolutely. Let me read this last paragraph that I wrote here. It says, uh, with the solid ground of justification under our feet, we can now embrace the progressive part of our salvation, which is sanctification. But as we labor, struggle, fail, weep, succeed, exult, fall, rise again in pursuit of daily holiness, we must ever keep before us these immutable truths. I am a regenerate, justified believer in Jesus Christ, seen in him as perfectly righteous, adopted into God's family, completely at peace with God, and in that state I will continue until I'm finally vindicated on Judgment Day. You just have to say, think, well, you don't have to say all that. But I mean, just something like that, your own version of that. Because you're going to struggle, you're going to have bad days, etc. But you just need to understand who you are in Christ. I love that. That's great. That's great. I think one of the key things, we haven't gotten to the next stage yet, but I want to talk about it, um, is the role of works, the role of effort, the role of determination and, and hard work in sanctification. If you don't work at sanctification, you will not be sanctified. If you don't work at putting sin to death, if you don't labor and struggle and come up with strategies and do actual things that are, that are essential to the process, you won't make progress. If you don't cut off your right hand if it's causing you sin, metaphorically, uh, if, you don't, if you don't do that, if you don't do whatever that means for you, you're going to keep sinning in those same ways. You actually have work to do. But in justification, we're just told you have absolutely literally no work to do at all. And if you try to work, you've sullied it with your pride. So it's, it's very different rules of the game in sanctification. And that's where people get tripped up. They, they struggle with that. They either don't make the, the effort and the works and they just kick back in, in sinful ease and indolence and they don't make progress in holiness. That's what I was talking about, about some of these other Baptist churches where they're just not clear on these things and they just are trying to get you to pray the sinner's prayer and then just rest in your security. And they're not teaching progressive holiness. They're not saying much and you're just being lazy. You're not literally not making progress at all over decades. Um, either that or... 
you know, uh, you are going to be making works in ways that are very inappropriate and dishonoring to God, and you're not going to be understanding uh, justification. You're going to be trying to use works in the wrong way. So we've got to work. You've got to work hard. Um, but you've got to work understanding justification by faith alone apart from works. Then it'll be acceptable. Then it'll be, it'll be right for you. And you're going to struggle with this the rest of your life. It's hard. I've taught, I've taught this progressive salvation thing it's literally 50, 100, 200 times since I've been here. I'm going to keep teaching it uh, because it's really of the issue of uh, pastoral ministry, of preaching, of teaching the gospel. This is, this is where the rubber meets the road. So let's now go on and talk about sanctification. Uh, sanctification, this is a definition. It's the progressive growth of a justified sinner into increasing holiness in the pattern of Christ by faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by striving on the part of the Christian. Sanctification is a partnership then between God and the believer whereby the believer puts sin to death by the Spirit and brings forth fruit in keeping with repentance by the Spirit. It's a partnership. By the way, because it's a partnership, that's why it goes so poorly, just so you know. And, and, and you're like, goes so poorly? Yes, it's going poorly. All right, when you compare how we should be perfect in Jesus to how we're actually doing, I think it's going poorly. Um, you'll see how poorly it went when you're glorified. We'll get to all that. But in the meantime, let's do the best that we can and let's be humble. I think the whole thing's, the whole system is rigged to make us humble. I really think it is. And, and I think also because there's real progress we can make in holiness and real fruit comes from it, it, it really, really matters. But fundamentally, uh, because it's a partnership, because God has given us things to do, we're going to fail. And that's, that's the struggle. All right, that's the definition. There are many scriptures on this. I'd say probably Romans 6.19 is my favorite sanctification scripture. Could someone read that for us? Romans 6.19. Very important, important verse. Okay, it's first of all, leading to holiness or unto holiness, ice into holiness, is the, it's the idea you don't have it yet. So there's a holiness you don't have yet, and there's a process you go through to get it. And that holiness is sanctification holiness. And what's interesting is it has to do with an offering of the parts of the body, which is every part, including the mind, the mouth, the hands, the feet, everything. Offering them in slavery, it says, to righteousness leading to holiness. And it's, it's actually very similar to how you used to live, especially I think this is uh, poignant if, like me, you're an adult convert to Christ. You can remember how it was in the years before you were converted and how you increasingly served wickedness and got good at it. Harder for those that are converted at age three or four, which I do believe that people can be genuinely converted. I think my children, I think, genuinely converted at a very early age. And so they don't really remember this process. But Paul's writing to Roman Christians. They can very well remember their lives in paganism. And he said, remember how it used to be for you you develop habits of wickedness and you got better and better at them. You were world-class sinners by the time the gospel came to Rome. All right, you were very, very good at sin. Well, now I want you to become world-class at righteousness. And it's going to take time, but it's going to be the same basic mechanism. Habits of holiness, like there used to be habits of wickedness. This, this verse is like the habit verse for me. It's all about the, what's... what's What's similar, what he's comparing, just as you used to do in your old life, so I actually want you to do in your new life. Like, wow, I thought we're just totally leaving that old life behind. No, no, there is an aspect here. And it's the trainability of the body and the mind in certain patterns. 
And just as you used to train your body, your mind and your body in certain patterns of lying or sexual immorality or thieving, and you got to be good at it, now I want you to, to train yourself in, in speaking kind words, in living for others, in getting up early and having a quiet time, learning new habits, and you're going to train, and those habits are going to lead you to holiness. That's what he's saying. This is a very good righteous, or a sanctification verse, but there are others. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So growing in Christ, that's a simple way of talking about sanctification. Any spiritual growth language is sanctification. Or again, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we who have unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness. Now, NIV gives us with ever-increasing glory, but the, the Greek is literally from glory into glory. So here's the thing. A justified sinner, the moment of justification, with no new habits of righteousness at all, has to learn all new habits. But at that instant, justified by faith in Christ, they are glory to God. They're glorious. But they'll be more glorious a week from, from now. <laughs> okay, And even more glorious 10 years down the road. That's the idea. From glory to glory, ever-increasing glory. All right? And then uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, it's a key, key uh, word here, obedience, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to obey. That's not what he says, but it's what he means. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us to will and to do according to his good purpose or works in you. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling is a hard verse for those churches I've been talking about here, the ones that focus on once saved, always saved and get people to pray a prayer and all that. They, they don't really know what to do with this. Because they know that we're not supposed to be saved by works. I mean, it says it right there in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So I don't know what this verse is teaching. Well, it's because they don't, they're not emphasizing the stages. This is not a justification verse. You don't work out your justification with fear and trembling. You do work out your sanctification. You work on it. And you work it out with... What does fear and trembling mean to you in this verse? Fear and trembling. Are you guys afraid of sin? Afraid Anybody afraid of sin? Good. I'm more afraid of God. I'm afraid of God. I'm, I, I think we should fear God. Because we fear God, though, here's the second question. Do you fear sin? Should we fear sin? Should we be afraid of what the devil might do to tempt us today? I am afraid of it. I'm afraid of losing everything I've ever valued in my life. And I think if I don't fear that and take necessary precautions, I'm like the, a king with a, with a walled city and news or reports of an invading army, and I just keep the city gates open all night long. It's like, are you out of your mind? Clear reports of an invading army, and you're keeping the city gates open? Are you out of your mind? You're, you're insane. You're a bad king. Let's just put it that way. We should fear what sin can do to us. That's what I think that's the fear, and I think fear of God is, is bigger, but I think people from First John, they think perfect love dries out fear. We're not supposed to fear anything. I mean, I don't know where you get it. We should fear. I mean, Jesus, even in the Lord's Prayer, says, lead us not into temptation. I don't want to be tempted today because temptation has a pretty good track record with me. And I'd rather avoid the tempting situation. I just don't want to sin. So the, the idea of fear. And actually, it's the very thing that was going on on Mount Sinai. Remember how God used all these trappings of terror? 
Remember, what were some of the trappings of terror where he wants the entire Israelite nation trembling at him? What, what did he do to make sure that happened? Darkness. Darkness. Earthquake will do it. Yeah. Fire on the top of the mountain. A voice so loud no one could bear hearing it. That'll do it. And then he says, do not fear because God has caused you to fear so that you won't sin against him. So if, if you look at that statement after all that, if you fear me, you don't need to fear anything. That's what he's saying. So fear me properly and you'll have a, f a flourishing, blessed life. No skeletons in the closet. You won't lose everything you've ever treasured in life except that God might put you on a pedestal of suffering. But that's different. That's different. You can lose all of your possessions and all that, not because you're a wicked person and because you're getting what you deserve, but because God's persecuting you to put you on display so you can preach the gospel like he did to Paul. Paul lost everything, but he had a clear conscience. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, the shame that comes from sin. We should fear it, and we should work out our salvation, but we don't do it alone. We work it out because God is at work in us to will and to act. So that's the essence of the mechanism, and it's mysterious. I'll never fully understand it. He lets us fail, and then he comes in and convicts us of sin, and we were, we're restored, and then we fight again, and we learn some lessons, and that's the, that's the rhythm of sanctification. We're going to talk all about that over the next number of weeks. And again, Paul says in the next chapter, Philippians uh, uh, 3, 12 through 14, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. That's the goal of sanctification. Your goal of sanctification is absolute perfection in every respect, mental, spiritual, physical perfection every day. That's the goal. He says, I've not been made perfect. So we, we do not teach perfectionism here. Can't, he says, I've not been made perfect. Now, if you're, if you're thinking, well, Paul hadn't reached perfection, but I, I have hopes. You know, I think I, look, if Paul hadn't reached perfection, you're not going to reach perfection. And, and it's just not in God's will for us in this life. All right. However, the command is there. He doesn't ever excuse our sins. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. The pressing is sanctification language. You don't press on in justification. You just receive it. But you press on, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus seized me for my own perfection, and I'm going to press after him until I am perfect. That's what he's saying. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, <clears throat> forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, that's sanctification language, I press on toward the goal uh, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Again, Hebrews 12, 1, this is sanctification, says, uh, let us throw off everything that hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So that is a great sanctification verse. Throw off the things that are troubling you. That's like cutting off your right hand and gouging out your right eye. That's similar teaching. Get rid of things out of your life that are causing you to sin. And run this race with endurance, this marathon race. That's uh, sanctification. And then later in that same chapter, make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There's a holiness that comes from striving and effort, and if you don't have it, you're not going to heaven. That's a very strong verse on the essential nature of sanctification. All right, so sanctification is essential to final salvation, but it will be imperfect in this life. Everyone who is justified will immediately begin to walk in holiness by the power of the Spirit. Because of indwelling sin, this battle will be difficult. Because we have a role to play in our works and efforts, some make better progress than others. Some days are better than others. Our eternal rewards are based on sanctification. 
All right, so the rewards you get, your crowns, so to speak, your gold, silver, costly stones, all of that will be tied to your sanctification. The more you put sin to death and share the gospel, put sin to death and go on a mission trip, put sin to death and give to the poor and needy, put sin to death and, and work on, on Bible study lessons and give them and you, do your ministry, that's where your rewards come from. It's a sanctification reward. Um, so any questions about sanctification? We're going to come back to all this. Um, I, man, it's quarter past, but I haven't talked about glorification. Can I just do that really quickly? That would be terrible for me to do two-thirds of the journey. Glorification, final, instantaneous transformation of a Christian into total glorious perfection in the pattern of Christ. It comes in two stages. It comes, uh, first, the soul. If, you don't, if you're not part of the... Uh, final generation and you'll know that you're not part of the final generation if you die that's how you'll know all right you are not part of that mysterious final generation of those that will be alive at the second coming of christ but if you're not part of those that are alive at the second coming of christ you will die it's appointed to us to die once and after that face judgment if you're a christian at the moment of death you'll be absent from the body the soul or spirit will be absent from the body present with the lord you will instantaneously be made a perfect soul but but you're not done being saved yet you're waiting for a resurrection body. That's instantaneous glorification. It says in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, it speaks of the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So they are in heaven, but they just don't have bodies. Remember the, the fifth seal and the, the martyrs are there in heaven. They're under the altar and they're asking how long until they're avenged. So that, that kind of thing. Absent from the body, present with the uh, Lord. They are conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And look what it says. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image or likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also what? Glorified. Now you're saying, now, pastor, wait a minute. Paul skipped a step. He skipped a step. You know, I, I, I noticed, okay? <laughs> Paul's not saying there isn't such a thing as sanctification. But I think 2 Corinthians 3, 18, which says from glory to glory, answers that. Sanctification's a subset of glorification in Paul's mind. It's an increasing glory in your life, but it's got its own special rules. And so therefore, we don't usually use that language with sanctification. Glorification is an instantaneous action of God at the moment of death or at the moment of resurrection, those two moments in which you are made perfect like Christ. That's what we're, we're doing, all right? So um, that's it. Um, bring it next time. We're going to dig into Romans 6. Romans 6 through 8 is our handbook for this class. And so we're going to really get into it, uh, into it next week. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.